Hello, if we've never met before, my name is Anna. It's so good to welcome you. Um, we're continuing our series on Nehemiah called Rebuilders. Um, we are following Nehemiah's story and we're essentially journeying through Nehemiah, asking the question, is what does the Lord want to speak to us about? That's Kath's head, if you just caught it there. Very subtle, not so subtle. Did you do that? Yeah, just your little bun. It was lovely, though. It's a lovely bun. Your hair looks good today. Um, but we, uh, this is far from like a triumphalist message where we're basically saying um, we want to see King's Cross totally. We want to like kind of get out there and make big changes, blah, blah, blah. We want to, um, yeah, triumph. <laughs> I don't know what I'm trying to say. Be like, tri like triumphalist because we recognize that there's further tremors to come that we understand that the rebuilding that we're going to be working on isn't just a thing that's out there. It's very much actually in here. It's affected us as individuals, us as a community, as a church, and yes, us as a city and a nation. So yes, King's Cross and beyond are very much in our sights. But the shaking has been a common experience. And the good news is that we have a God whose redemptive story and whose redemptive plan is much bigger than we can possibly dream or imagine. It holds all the elements of us as individuals, our community and our nation. In fact, his vision is for the whole cosmos. That is quite big. Mm -hmm. So we are going to pray before we start, before we continue us. Um, Father, we just invite you to come. Yeah. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that the, the shaking has happened internally and to all those people around us. And Father, we ask that you would um, begin to stir up hope. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and do what only you can do this morning. That you would meet individuals in their homes, whether they're on their own or with a group. That you would come and meet with them, encounter them, Father. Amen. So, our series began on week one. Um, with re Weeping Over the Ruins, such a cheery title, as we looked at the story and the context of Nehemiah. And then Pete took us further into the context of the story in the second week, looking at building altars in the midst of devastation, as he took us back into looking at the rebuilding work that had already begun in Jerusalem with Ezra and Zerubbabel. And he made that terrible dad joke, Zerubbabel. And I gave him some feedback on that one, fear not. But he, the first thing that they did when they entered into Jerusalem, they started the rebuilding process, was they focused on worship. And now we're going to head back into Nehemiah, into the book of Nehemiah, looking at chapter 2. And the, this book, this chapter, kind of splits into two of the parts of the story. There's the bit where, where Nehemiah is still in Babylon, and then there's the bit where he arrives in Jerusalem. So we're going to look at those two sections. So let's look at the first section. This is Nehemiah before he's even set out. He's in Babylon, working the, uh, at the court of King Artaxerxes. In the month of Nisan, not the car, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing to do, this can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? 
And it pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. There's two things I notice in this um, little bit. The first thing is that Nehemiah had been fasting and praying for four months. In Nehemiah 1, verse 1, it tells us that he found out about the gates being burnt down in the month of Kislev, which is essentially the autumn month in the Jewish calendar, which is kind of around November, December time. So then we notice that in when he, it's in Nehemiah 1, in the, it says in the month of Nisan, which is essentially the spring month, March or April. So all we're about to read, everything that we're about to read, unfolds after four months of prayer and intercession, the desire to see Jerusalem rebuilt, has been growing in Nehemiah all that time as he sat in the grief and the prayer. It hasn't been a rushed response, but it begins with prayer. That's the first thing that we notice. The second thing we notice is that Nehemiah is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah is in a position of um, authority in a palace serving a Babylonian king called Artaxerxes. He's in the king's court. He works and lives in the center of power. Now, this isn't just the center of power of any nation or any king. This is the center of power of Babylon, the, the very nation that destroyed Jerusalem in the first place. And Artaxerxes is incredibly fickle about the rebuilding of Jerusalem. In Ezra 4, we read that he demands, he sends a decree out and says, you must stop this rebuilding work, which means Nehemiah's desire to see it rebuilt is an exact opposition to Artaxerxes. Therefore, Nehemiah has a lot to lose in this moment, his position and potentially even his life. So it says a lot when he says in verse 2, I was very much afraid because he should have been. And there are two, these two things that lead to a crossroads, a decision point. How much does he care about Jerusalem? Enough to get his hands dirty and give up the powerful position that he's found himself in, to risk losing the security of all that he's known, his job and perhaps even his life. It's a choice. Does he care more about the rebuilding of Jerusalem or sticking with the status quo? And you can kind of hear echoes of Jesus' teaching in Luke 14, where, he, where Jesus speaks about the importance of weighing up the cost of following him. It says in Luke 14, um, suppose one of you builds a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? If you lay the foundation and not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or so, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. The four months leading to this point of Nehemiah is him counting the cost of the rebuilding process. He's considering the cost, um, it, and, and Jesus invites us to consider the cost of following him. And as I was preparing this talk, I was going to skip over this section of Nehemiah too. I was going to get straight onto the, the rebuilding in Jerusalem. But I felt like that actually there's a lot of people who feel in a very similar place to Nehemiah at the moment. You're at a bit of a crossroads, a decision point. It could be a choice about the future, your future, or it might be questions of faith, or it might be that you've just, you look ahead of you and things just feel intimidating and you feel like you're being asked to make a decision. And for some of you, the weight and the cost of that decision is, is weighing heavily upon you. 
And Jesus is very upfront with us. He says, actually, following him is going to be costly. If you want to be a hopeful rebuilder, it's going to be costly. That is what he says. Because we're essentially saying to Jesus, here's my life. It's not my own anymore. You can have my time. You can have everything that belongs to me. You can have my hands. You can have my mouth. You can have my feet and all my resources. But there is a promise for those people who say, I'm all in Jesus, who who give him everything. And the promise is that you will gain more than you will ever lose. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells the story of a man who finds um, treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and brought it. And Philippians 3 is um, Paul's testimony of basically saying, everything that I had before, I consider a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And I want to encourage you to do some of the work that Nehemiah has been doing, to take some space in prayer, to do what Jesus says in Luke 14 and sit down and consider. Book it in your diary before this service even finishes. Time that's not going to be rushed, time on your day off in a morning or an afternoon, a walk or a coffee, whatever works for you, and ask some of the questions. Consider the cost of what it means to say yes to Jesus. Only you can do that. Only you can decide whether you want to put your life all in for Jesus. And so often it's the difficult questions that make us run away from prayer, but actually prayer is the place of asking the difficult questions. It's the place to um, throw the challenges up to God, to say how you're really feeling and to, um, to kind of wrestle with God before him. After all, Jesus seems to want to invite the deliberation. He invites people to come and deliberate before him, the cost of following him. And you might be sitting there thinking, do you know what? I don't actually have that much to throw in in the first place. I'm exhausted. I have nothing to offer. And that is okay. It was Jesus who said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, upo- um, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, easy and my burden is light. Do you know what? Honestly, I used to think this was a verse for the lazy. But right now, it's just being honest. Um, but right now, I feel where my, I feel like my offering is a paltry offering before God. It's a total relief that even I can be a part of his rebuilding. Even though I feel like I don't have much to give, I'm still a part of it. I'm still invited. And in some ways, I feel a bit like Nehemiah in, in Babylon, where I sense God speaking to me about playing my part in the hopeful rebuilding. And quite honestly, I'm waking up in the middle of the night absolutely terrified. You ever have those days, those nights when you wake up and it's like, oh gosh, this panic is settling in on you. And it's this panic that's been settling on me night after night after night. And for a few months now, as I'm, as I'm considering what it is that God is calling me to do, and he's asking me to exercise faith, to be courageous and to follow him in, in obedience. And it's terrifying. It is utterly terrifying, particularly when you don't feel like you have much to give at the moment. But do you know what is calming me down as I wake in the night? I've begun to, follow, um, to fear not following him more. I've begun to visualize two different scenarios. One is where I give, I give it a go and I fail. The other scenario is where I pass up what God is inviting me into. And it doesn't sound like that should calm me down, um, because, you know, considering the two worst case scenarios. 
I am an optimist, I do promise you. But I've genuinely begun to become more scared of saying no to God and regretting responding to what I sense him calling me to do. And I think that's where Nehemiah gets to. He didn't cease to be scared about what was ahead. And, but the idea of Bab staying in Babylon was no longer an option for him. He couldn't sit there and do nothing. He wasn't some hero. He was terrified. But the thought of doing nothing scared him more. And being a hopeful rebuilder is basically saying, I have, I have the courage to say that the, the status quo troubles me more than what I might lose upon the way. So that was the um, not-so-short first section. So let's continue into the second section, reading Nehemiah 2, verse 11 to 18. This is when he's arrived in Jerusalem. I went to Jerusalem. After staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went through the valley gate, through the jackal wall and the dung gate, Someone, I imagine someone like Kath came up with that name. <laughs> Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved um, toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. I love this little nighttime stroll of Nehemiah's as he takes time to consider the way ahead. You know, Nehemiah is a man of action, but it's always deliberate action. And one of the things I'm convinced about as he's walking around those walls, he's not just, he's inspecting the rubble, and, but I, one of the things he's contemplating isn't just what am I going to do, but why have we got into this situation in the first place? Why is Jerusalem in ruins? And that is a really interesting question. If I take you back to the timeline I showed a few weeks ago, um, which has the backstory of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls. Essentially, the nation of Israel, both the northern and southern kingdom, had turned from God despite multiple warnings from the prophets. And the themes of the prophets had been the same thing, that their worship had not been satisfactory, that their oppression of the poor had not been satisfactory. And you can read it, um, you can read the prophets, but here's an example of one, um, Amos 5, where they, he talks about this nation putting a tax straw um, a straw tax on the poor and imposing a tax on their grain. And he says to them, I know your offenses. I know how great your sins are. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. And as a response, he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, your worship. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard, regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll down like a river and righteousness like a never-ending stream. Mm. Now, Amos 5 is a challenge to people like me who are desperate to get back and sing worship because they are singing, but they are not worshipping. 
And God essentially says, I'm fed up. I'm fed up with you misrepresenting me. I'm fed up of you oppressing the poor and building your mansions and getting your wine and worshipping me in all the kind of different actions, but not actually worshipping me. I will not have you misrepresent me anymore. So he lets them go into exile. And what I find interesting about the story of Nehemiah is that as you read on through the book, in the process of rebuilding, some of the things that were issues before start emerging again. In Nehemiah 5, he has to stop them because in the process of rebuilding the walls, they start oppressing the poor and making them into slaves. And their worship is not satisfactory. It's off still at the end of the book. It's almost like the very sins of the generation that had gone before lies in the rubble. And as they start the rebuilding process, it emerges again. And we know that our history informs our present. We know that things undoubt with continue to live on. And we see that very clearly in the systemic racism. Our history um, was formed and shaped. Our nation has been formed and shaped in a way which, which affects us now today, our institutions and us as people. And it's healthy to be aware of our nation's history. It's healthy to be aware of our personal history and how it affects the way in which we live today. Not just the good bits, but the bits that make us uncomfortable. And Nehemiah is very familiar with the history because um, as he walks around Jerusalem, his eagle eyes spot it. When it starts rearing its head again, he can spot it and say, no, that needs to stop. If we want to be a part of a hopeful rebuilding process, then we need to learn the mi mistakes of the past. Decide what we want to, what we want to re rebuild and how. We need to be like Nehemiah, inspecting the rubble. Mm. And this reflection time is crucial. And it goes right from our personal lives to us as a, a whole society and a church mm. and beyond. What are the things that we were doing before which we don't want to go back to? Mm. The pace we were living at how disconnected we were from creation, mm. how when we were forced to live online, we realized how unsatisfactory it was and how important the physical communication was, mm. how we took so much for granted and, um, and had very little gratitude, how we were addicted to the buzz of worship, how consumeristic we were, how normal it was for the loss of black lives, how normal the loss of black lives had become. I don't believe that this virus was God's judgment on us, but I do believe the virus has created and exposed a lot. For example, the number of children needing access to food and um, support from a food bank increased in April by 107% in comparison to 2019. But that was a number that was already rising exponentially. As you inspect the rubble, what are you seeing? What don't you want to go back to? What are you saying is here and no further? Because we could easily fall into what the Israelites do and pick up where they left off. And I encourage you to take time to consider the changes that you want to see. And we want to support you personally in that. We're working on some pattern resources, the ways in which you can kind of have space to process not just you know, your, your life history, but also the last few months, what the cracks have emerged um, as, as the cracks have emerged in us as well as the community around us. But as we enter into that process of healing, we want to serve others on their healing journey too. As we come to inspect the rubble, we'll begin to notice that the, the, the fragments of other people's lives who have been shattered as well around us. And like Nehemiah, we have a communal responsibility. He doesn't just focus on his family home, but he's actually interested in the whole um, city of Jerusalem. 
in April um, 2019, if you remember the year 2019 at all, um, you'll know that the icon iconic Notre Dame building caught fire and the steeple was totally demolished. For around 800 years, this building had dominated the feature, had been a dominant feature of the skyline of Paris. And it would be, um, it was a fixture that people just wouldn't doubt would ever be, its, its presence would never be in question. But as they picked through the rubble of the building, with the fire still smouldering, someone captured this picture of the um, altar. The light of the cross, um, the light falling on the cross. All around the fire had blazed, but the cross was untouched, still standing amidst the devastation. And as I look at that photo, I wonder if it's a prophetic picture of where we are now. It doesn't look particularly pretty, and the ruins still feel fresh, and there's still fires burning. But as we inspect the rubble, there will be hope. And this isn't a hope we have to work up, but it's a hope we discover that something has withstood the shaking, that something hasn't crumbled. The writers of Hebrew describe, describe the kingdom of God like this, that we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken because it is founded on the person of Jesus. And Paul was so convinced in the unshakable love of God that he wrote in Romans 8, that he was convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation would be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And how is it that Paul is so convinced that is true? Well, a few chapters earlier we read in Romans 5, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love that we can trust, yeah. that when we were his enemies, essentially when we were not worthy, when we were unlovable, when we had nothing to impress him, he loved us. And it wasn't a love of mere words and bluster. It was a love of action that he proved in dying for us. And as we, as we inspect the rubble, we will discover something that hasn't been shaken. There are going to be lots of people who, have, who cast vision for a rebuilding. And to be honest, Right now, I barely trust my own motives, let alone other people's. But any other vision that is not built on the, and is not rooted and founded on the person of Jesus is going to be unstable and fragile. I've never been more convinced that the love of Jesus is the only thing that we can depend on. There is no love more trustworthy or reliable than this, and that is good news for us. The discovery of a hope that there is a love that is stronger even than the grave that in the last six months, there has been something that hasn't been shaken. It's something that we can lean upon when we feel weary. That as we inspect the rubble and the destruction, it feels overwhelming that there is hope. That the road ahead may be exhausting and cost a costly prospect, but there is the promise of his faithful love, his strong, fast, steady love. A love which covers our failing and a love that is strong when we are weak.